It's hard to imagine disliking a character more than Brock Sterling that I've had a hard time liking all weekend. Well, that was the point, though. He represents the world. And all of the performance, all of the superficiality, all of the, the energy and the emotion, but not grounded in truth. And that's one of my greatest concerns for your generation is all sorts of emotions not grounded in truth. And so this weekend, we have been blessed with the gift of the message of Ecclesiastes, which has told us that if you're disconnected from your creator, if you're disconnected from the one who made you and not in a relationship with him, which is what you're made for more than anything else, everything you do, not just the bad things, but even the good things won't add up to anything of lasting value. There'll be temporary fleeting pleasures. And the only advice you can live on is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so it's been wonderful to be challenged to think in this way by this great book. I must tell you, I've just been so blessed to be with you all this weekend. You have been so wonderfully engaged and respectful and attentive, and God has clearly been working, and I'm deeply grateful for that. Well, we're going to finish our time with the only conclusion Ecclesiastes offers. I don't think this book actually gives all the answers we need. I think we need the rest of the Bible for it. Some interpreters see a lot more hope in this book, a lot more resolution, a lot more conclusion, but I think it leaves us hanging. I love what one one interpreter said, he said that the book of Ecclesiastes provides the silhouette that the face of Jesus fills in. And it's Jesus, as we talked about last night, that gives us the way, the truth, and the life that we desperately need. Otherwise, even wisdom and power and pleasure and possessions, accomplishments, work, all the moral living you can do, even all the man-centered religion you can practice doesn't add up to anything of lasting value, nothing that actually gives you meaning in life. And the book's been asking, what does it all add up to? And the conclusion has been emptiness and chasing after wind. And so this book is intentionally disturbing to us, and I hope you've been disturbed. I have as I've thought through my life and the way I'm living it. Even though I have a relationship with God, am I living it in a way that is actually living according to who God is and who I am? I can, in my days, fritter away time and, and not make the most of every opportunity, as the Bible says, to redeem the time, to take the time God has given us. And none of us know how long he's given us on this earth, but are we taking the time and redeeming it, buying something worthwhile with it? That's the big question for us this morning. The conclusion that we arrive at in this book is this, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, in the last chapter, right at the end. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of mankind. Again, I don't think this is the good news. This actually prepares us for the good news. This helps us to start to think about God as the almighty God as the all-powerful, eternal creator of everything, and then see ourselves in light of who he is. And so the end of the matter then becomes fear of the Lord. 
Fear of the Lord is what this is about. And this is a concept that may seem strange to you. We touched on it our first session together, but I want to return to it now and show you how important this idea is in the Bible. It's the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes, but it's at the heart of everything that we do. Listen to what Jesus says. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after all he has killed, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So there's a kind of fear that we're supposed to have for God. There's a kind of fear that's unhealthy. The Bible, interestingly, commands us to fear God and also to have a kind of fear, not have a other kind of fear, a fear based in not knowing who God is, a fear based in thinking God's somehow an abusive father or a father who doesn't love us or won't take care of us. That sort of fear is based in wrong ideas of God. We're not to fear tomorrow. We're commanded not to live in fear. The fear of man is one of the great hearts of our sin. We fear others and their opinion of us, and so we do all sorts of foolish things. So there's a kind of fear we shouldn't have. There's a kind of fear that's actually sinful. It's based in not trusting God. But there's another kind of fear the Bible teaches us to have, and that's the fear of the Lord. And if you fear God, you need not fear anyone or anything else. It frees you from all the other fears that make your life worse when you have the right kind of fear of the Lord. And it's a respect for who God is. We said on our first session that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This book is about, it's in the wisdom literature. And the Bible says if you want wisdom, start with knowing who God is in the right respect for him, the right awe for him, the right reverence for him. You put God in his proper place and don't bring him down to our level or put ourselves even above his level. And so we fear the Lord and it's the beginning of wisdom. And so as we said last time, this was the definition I offered in our first session and now we return to it. A proper fear of God is a mixture of reverence and pleasure, joy and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he's done for us. It's a love for God which is so great that we'd be ashamed to do anything which would displease or grieve him and makes us happiest when we're doing what pleases him. The fear of the Lord is seeing God for who he is. And when you see people in the Bible come to a deeper understanding of who God is, fear of the Lord is always the result. You could look at Isaiah, the great prophet of God in Isaiah chapter 6, when he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up in the train of his robe filled the temple. And he heard the angels singing, holy, holy, holy. And he doesn't say, cool. He doesn't say, ah, oh, this is very interesting. You know what he says? I'm coming apart at the seams. I'm undone. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I've seen the Lord, and he gets on his face before God. And then God comes and provides the solution through atonement from the altar, like we talked about last night. Peter sees the power of God and Jesus' miraculous catch of fish he enables Peter to have. And he doesn't say, oh, this is going to be great for my business. He says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. You see, he sees himself for who he is in his sin when he sees God for who he is in his almighty power. 
And so as we grow in our knowledge of God, we realize we're not in charge. We're not in control. And so we have this wonderful realization of who God is. Really, the best way I can describe the fear of the Lord is, <gasps> it's not just this, hey, what's up, bud, with God. You know, and you even listen to some worship songs, not like we've been singing this weekend, but you listen to some worship songs, and it's like, is he singing about his girlfriend or God? I can't quite tell. Oh, he just said Lord. He's talking about God. But it can be so mushy and, and sentimental, and you're, it's even cheesy, romantic sort of language, and, and you don't often have a sense of, <gasps> what, is, what is this God that we're talking about? And so... Look what Jeremiah 9 says. The reason we sin is not because we don't have a good enough filter on our computer or good enough friends to hold us accountable because you know what? You can lie to your friends. The reason, bottom line, we sin, the Bible says, we don't fear God. Your wickedness will punish you. Your apostasies will convict you. Know and see that it's evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. So as you gather together and seek to grow in your Christian life, don't just ask each other if you failed again this week and say, yeah, me too. But you know what you need to be doing? Cultivating a deeper fear of God. Cultivating a deeper understanding of who God is. That is the solution to sin. I don't just need external remedies. I don't need Band-Aids on cancer. I need a solution, and the solution to sin is fearing God. You know, when I talk to a guy, and he's just failing morally with his girlfriend, and I say, you need to respect that woman more, but most of all, you need to fear God more. You need to cultivate a deeper fear of God. It's amazing, you know. We'll be on our computer looking at something we shouldn't in the presence of Almighty God. And then just another frail, fallen creature comes in the room and we suddenly want to get off the computer when God's been there the whole time. And one theologian says that's living as a practical atheist. You believe in God, but he doesn't carry weight in your life. That's what the glory of God means. It means heaviness, a weight that God's supposed to have for us. And so we sin because we don't fear God. You know, God protects those who fear him? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. You know, I prayed before we left my driveway in La Mirada for a safe trip up here. And it's good and right to pray that God will protect us on our way home and throughout our days. But this says the prerequisite of that is fearing the Lord. It's just amazing how this central concept gets lost so often. Fearing God is why we live holy lives. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, making holiness perfect in what? The fear of the Lord. An understanding of who God is that leads me to a life of holiness so I look more and more like he does. It's amazing what we're attracted to in people. You know, we don't allow our family, as much as I can control it, to sit around the dinner table and say, oh, yeah, she's really hot or he's really hot. Uh, if one of my kids, I love my kids are attracted to, to 
the opposite sex, but I, but I will often try to get them to redirect the conversation and say, tell me, what do you admire about her? What in her character is attractive to you? And what I would love to hear young people say is, holiness. She fears the Lord. She answers to Jesus. I am never concerned she'll love me more than she loves Jesus. He's her Lord. He's everything to her. He is her life. That's what I find attractive about her. See, we need a reorientation of our whole priorities when it comes to things like dating and what we find attractive. And so making holiness perfect in the fear of the Lord is what we're after. The reason we get along as Christians the way we should is because we fear God. Isn't that amazing? Be subject to one another. In other words, submit to one another. Have a submissiveness, a humility. Don't put your rights and priorities in center of everything all the time, but give deference to each other. Submit to one another. Be subject to one another. Why? How? In the fear of Christ. You so respect Jesus that you respect his people. You love his people. You love Jesus, so you love the bride. And you're willing to sacrifice for her good and for the good of others. The fear of the Lord is a source of delight for us. It's not just not dutiful obedience. In the fear of the Lord, there's strong confidence. And his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commands. We've got to get to the point where we find God's commands delightful because we know they lead to life and sin disgusting because we know it leads to death. There's a radical difference in God's ways and the world's ways, and we need to learn, train ourselves to love God's ways. Social media is not going to help you do that. Worldly pursuits are not going to help you do that. We are bombarded every day with messages helping us to love what the world loves, the the system in opposition to God, not what God loves. And being a Christian fundamentally is an intimacy with God, a love for God, and a worship of God that leads to becoming people who love what God loves and hate what God hates. And that's, that's at the heart of who we need to seek to become. We delight in his commandments because we know they lead to life. And as we said in our first session, Jesus is our example of this. In his human nature... He's divine and human. In his human nature, he lived out for 33 years a perfect human existence, and at the core of it is the fear of the Lord. This is the description of the Messiah when he comes, and this is exactly how Jesus lived. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is why when Jesus is in the garden, wrestling with the fact that he's going to go and suffer a horrific death on a cross for us. And he's going to bear the sins of the world on his shoulders and be forsaken by his Father in our place. That's why he gets to the point of saying, not my will, but thy will be done. Because he has a fear of the Lord in his human nature that leads him to do what's right, leads him down the path of obedience. And we need to realize that obedience is at the heart of faithfulness. Obedience is the heart of worship. It's the heart of being a disciple. Just look at some of these verses. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 
This is love for God, to obey his commandments, and his commands are not burdensome. We don't hear enough about obedience these days. We will hear about faith, we'll hear about trust, but the Bible has this concept of the obedience of faith. I love the passion that you are expressing in worship. I love that. And I want to encourage you to continue to cultivate passionate hearts for God, but passion without obedience is offensive to God. It's a sham. It's that talk show host. It's not real. It's just frothy superficiality. And so we want it like the name of the band, join in with the praise of heaven. We want to be, be part of what's going on there, which is real. It's gathered around the throne, seeing God for who he is, saying, holy, holy, holy. Psalm 90, 12 has this beautiful verse. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And, and daily obedience is the way we see that happen. Listen to John Wesley. One design you're to pursue to the end of time, the enjoyment of God in time and eternity. Let every affection, every thought and word and work be subordinate to this. Have no end, no ultimate end, but God. That is a oriented life, rightly, around who God is. And anything else, any pleasure he gives us, any gift he gives us, which are abundant and countless in this world, has to have God at the center of it all. He's got to be our God. Nothing else can take his place or should be taking his place. He is our ultimate end. And here's the glory of what we've been talking about. There is a way of living where you see God for who he is. And you don't mess with him. You respect him. You know his ways are the right ways. You know his wisdom is the wisdom. You know only in him and in following him in daily faithful obedience are you capable of living the kind of life we're called to live. And the writer of Ecclesiastes comes along and says, you disconnect even the best things in life from God, it's empty, completely empty. But when you connect the things of life to God, the things of life become a wonderful gift and a beautiful pleasure. When you keep them in perspective, when you see God as God and God alone, everything else, his gifts he gives you, talent, ability, a human body, food, sex, in the context of marriage for life, uh, the, the beauty of creation all around us, all the pleasures of life, abilities we have, intelligence, sense of humor, relational capacity. Everything we have is a gift from God for us to enjoy. That's what it says. The Christian life is not a life devoid of pleasure. No, the Christian life is the most pleasurable life you could live. It's the most joyful life you could live. Yes, living in a, in a fallen world, that joy is brokenhearted joy. And, and there's a groaning with the gratitude that we should have. And there's a longing for the resolution of it all one day in the midst of the contentment we have now, knowing God will make it all right one day. And so we, we can make God everything. And what happens is the ultimate goal of our lives is then glorifying God. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, do it for the Lord. Whatever it is, a menial task, a uh, Making breakfast, eating breakfast, having a conversation. You're cultivating a life where you're knowing God by becoming men and women of the word, men and women of prayer, men and women of worship, men and women com to committed to fellowship, relationships that help you grow. When you commit to those things, when you commit to serving people, 
Your love for God, your knowledge of God will deepen and intensify, and your life will be wonderful. Not without suffering, not without trials, not without persecution even, but it will be filled with joy when you do everything to the glory of God. Look at this. Paul says, whatever you do, whether eating or drinking, whether eating or drinking, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That means you should, should eat a peach to the glory of God. Yeah, eat a peach. What does it mean to eat a peach to the glory of God? You do it with gratitude. You do it with unselfishness. You, you share some of your peach. You, you can eat a peach worshipfully, thanking God for how amazing it tastes and that he gave you taste buds and the ability to taste the sweetness of it and the texture of it. The, the mountains, the trees, the, the people you're going to go down the hill with are all sources of worshiping and glorifying God. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And here's how it all ends. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, Ecclesiastes has been saying that the pleasures of life add up to nothing when they're lived under the sun. But the pleasures of life can be a source of worship and glorifying God when they're done in relationship to him, where you have a constant, continual awareness of his presence. That's what Paul means when he says we should live in continual prayer. doesn't mean we're on our knees with our eyes closed and our hands folded, but we're aware of his presence. And we do everything, eating, drinking, laughing, entertainment, recreation, uh, everything. Studies in school, an, ath an athletic thing you get to do, your hobbies, it's done to the glory of God. And that'll have a, a refining perspective in your life. We need to have a healthy, holy fear of God. I, I think I told you I disobey doctor's orders. I do, I have this rebellious streak that, that God and my wife have been going after for a long time now. But I went to Belize on a mission trip. I spent a summer digging outhouse holes for refugees, El Salvadorian refugees, and it was in the 80s during a terrible war going on there. So I dug outhouse holes, but I got a weekend off. And when I got the weekend off, I went and I went snorkeling in one of the most incredible areas off the coast of Belize. And it was beautiful because uh, the, the coral was incredible, the fish were incredible, but they said to me, don't go past the reef because that's where the real ocean starts out there. You don't want to be out there. So I went out there. And it only took about five minutes where I was saying, whoa, this is cool. I was by myself. I just had a snorkel and some flippers, and I'm, I'm out there. And I'm thinking, this, you know that adrenaline of being out of control? You feel that feeling? But I still felt pretty arrogant, and I can handle this. And I got to tell you, something went by me. It was huge. I don't know what it was still. I, got, I didn't get a good look at it. But it was way bigger than I was. And it went by me really fast. And was out of sight before I could even see what it was. And I had a fear. Because I knew I was not in charge of this area. He was or she was, whatever it was that went by me. And I got back over that reef as fast as I could and got to land. There should be a healthy, holy fear of the Lord like that. But not a fear that ever keeps you from running to him when you're in trouble. When you run to God, you know he has the power. 
he needs, the knowledge he needs to take care of you like he needs to, the wisdom he needs to do that. And so you don't presume upon that, but you know his grace and his love and his mercy as well. So he's the one you run to when you're in trouble. He's the run, one you run to when you fail and you sin again because he's the only one who can solve that sin problem in repentance and forgiveness again. And so we need to work that out and live that out. And then you can live a life, even if your life is really hard circumstantially, that's filled with joy, that's filled with pleasure, that's filled with excitement. One of the most godly men I've ever known was a man named Otto Scherner. This is Otto and his wife Katie and their four children when they were missionaries in the 1940s in China. And they had an incredibly difficult life as missionaries in China. He, he ended up running a hospital, and they got kicked out by the, by the communists when they came in, and, and they had to leave the country eventually, but, but they, they had a really hard life. And I got to know Mr. Scherner when he was in his 80s. He was part of my church when I was living in Chicago. And he was just one of the most godly, incredible men I've ever met. He did not live life under the sun. He lived life constantly connected to eternity. He didn't get caught up in all the things that wear us out and make our lives meaningless because he was living for what really mattered and what really lasted. I could tell you stories about Otto all day. I want to tell you about the last time I ever saw him and talked to him. I went back to Chicago after I moved out to L.A., and I visited my church, and I heard Mr. Scherner was still alive, and he was 102 years old, and I wanted to talk to him. And I had heard that he had gone blind since I had last seen him. I had also heard his wife Katie had died, and I had also heard that his oldest son had died. When you live to 102, your kids start to die before you do. Nobody expects to have to bury their kids. Here he is. So I heard his son had died, his wife had died, and he, he had gone blind. And, and I sat down next to him. I slid next to him, and I said, Mr. Scherner, I hadn't seen him in about five or six years. I said, Mr. Scherner, it's me, Eric Thomas. He said, oh, Eric, I pray for you all the time. And honestly, I kind of didn't believe him. I'm sorry to admit. And then he said, how are things at Biola? And how is Donna? And, how, and he starts asking me all the, he was praying for me. And then I said, Mr. Scherner, I heard you lost your sight. And he said, oh, I did. And the worst part of it is I can't read my Bible. But I have a Bible on audio. Can you imagine? I can listen to the Bible anytime I want. And he had all this gratitude in his, in his voice. And I said, Mr. Scherner, tell me, how are you doing? And I expect him to say, oh, you know, I lost my wife, Katie. And he said that. And he said, I lost my son. But then he got this huge smile on his face. And he reaches over and he grabs my hand. And he said, but Eric. Have you heard what God's been doing in China? I never thought I'd live to see what God is doing in China. This man who could have lived in this little pity party, he could have been so self-absorbed at this time in his life with all this suffering, his face lit up, and he had got this giant smile on his face because what he was living for never depended on whether he could see or his wife was even alive still, or he didn't lose one of his children. His life depended on the hope he had for eternity, 
knowing he was going to live forever. And he was going to see his Katie again. And he was going to see his son again because they had trusted Christ like he had. And that he was seeing the gospel advance in this nation he loved since he was a little boy and spent hardship to, to reach with the gospel. He was thrilled more than anything else about what God was doing in China. I will never forget his face when he reached over and grabbed my hand with a thrill talking about what God was doing. See, when you live for what really matters and what really lasts, whatever the details, doesn't mean you have to be a missionary to China, but whatever God has you doing with your life, do you do it to the glory of God in the fear of the Lord, experiencing the pleasures forevermore that are only found in him? Let's pray. Lord, help us. We desperately need help. We, even, even those of us who've been walking with you as long as we can remember, and, and we're into our old age, we can get distracted, Lord. I know I, I can and do. We can fritter away our time instead of redeeming it for what really matters and what really lasts. We can fear other humans more than you. We can be so concerned about our reputation and popularity and being cool and accomplishing things disconnected from you, that we live lives that are just chasing after wind. Lord, I'm grateful for those who trusted you last night and have begun an, begun an entirely different way of living. And I pray you'd bless them in this time. For, for those who still haven't trusted Jesus, I pray they would realize that knowing you through him is the only way to find life abundant and eternal. And they would come to know you. Lord, for those who do know you, I pray that we would make the most of every opportunity and see every day as an opportunity to live in a holy, healthy fear of you and a joy that comes from knowing the creator who made us and loved us to death. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.